outright. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about glorifying Him. It's about living your entire life for His glory. Amen? Amen. And I just, that was just amazing. So uh, this morning, we're going to go to the Old Testament because I kind of like it. So we're going to be in the book of Joshua chapter 4. So this is called the memorial narrative in the fourth chapter, and I'm going to give a little introduction, and then I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go through it. Sound good? Good. So throughout history, nations have used memorials to remember great people and great events in their history. In the United States, we use memorials as well, commemorating people and events. An example, we can look Washington, D.C., the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Memorial. We remember these great lives of these great men who paved the way for this great nation, right? Well, Israel was no different. In the fourth chapter of Joshua, God informs the Israelites that they are to set up a memorial of their own, two of them, in fact, commemorating what God had done for them in their crossing of the Jordan River. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at an exposition of the fourth chapter, then we're going to give an interpretation of what it is, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. Because all biblical truth and everything in the Bible can be applied to the modern-day Christian, otherwise it wouldn't be there. right? So I want everyone right now to turn to the fourth chapter, and we're just going to read through it. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so if it sounds a little different, it's because you have a different translation. the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood, and lay them down in the place where you will lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask to you. You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them, 
about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us. Oh, lost my place. Until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I know that was a mouthful. I know that was a lot. I just want to pray right now. Lord, we, we just thank you for your word. We are so grateful that we have this living word to be with us every single day as we walk through this life. And I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit come in this place, Lord, that you take over right now and that you give the word to your flock that you want them to hear, Lord. Bless this word and bless these people, Lord God. In your name, I pray. Amen. So what we're going to do first is we're going to start with an exposition of the chapter. So an exposition is a description or an explanation of what the author is just presenting in the passage. So basically, we're just going to give an overview of what we just read. I know there was a lot of it, right? So it's important first to take a quick look at where Israel is in this story. So Moses had just died. Joshua was about to take over. They're coming along through, they went through the Sinai Peninsula all the way around, and they're coming from the east side over the Jordan River west. So they're moving east to west, and they were in Shittim, and they're moving over the Jordan River. Okay? What it's important to know here, too, is that the Jordan River at the time was at flood stage. And if you look at a picture of the Jordan River when it's at flood stage, you cannot get through it. It's an impossibility to cross it with all of the women, the children, the, everything that they would have had, it would have been almost impossible in order to get this done, right? So Joshua, as the author, repeats what God tells him, as the message that he tells the twelve twice. And the repetition of the words show that the event is of importance. He wants them to take these twelve stones, he repeats it, he says it to Joshua, and then Joshua repeats it to the people, and then Joshua writes it down twice in the chapter. So when we see something written down twice in the chapter, there's an a emphasis on what God wants us to know. The memorial stones, right? So Joshua tells the men to pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Joshua then gives the reason as to why the men are doing this. Joshua explains that it is to be a sign among you. He then goes on and explains that this is also for the future generations of Israel. When one of their children come and ask them about the stones, they are 
to explain that the stones are there to remind them of the waters being cut off before the Jordan. They're there for that reason, right? And something about the memorial stones in general, they were a very simple memorial, but it was all that was needed, right? It was not proud like the temples or the pyramids that were in Egypt. It was nothing like that. It wasn't supposed to draw attention to the person who made the memorial. It was supposed to draw attention to God, right? And it's very sim uh, similar to what we see of Jacob's pillar or Samuel's Ebenezer afterwards, void of every ornament or marking that could magnify man. It was designed for the single purpose to recall the goodness of God. That's what it was there for. They weren't flashy, and they were not set up to remember something beautiful that was man-made. Its sole purpose was to demonstrate the power of God and his goodness in bringing the Israelites across the Jordan. And then Joshua goes on to tell the people that it will be a memorial forever. And I'm sure if you talk to a person in Israel about the Jordan River and they go down there, I mean, you would know better than me, but I mean, I'm sure they would probably come exactly right here to this story, right? So I want to point something out, and I, I, I'm kind of upset I didn't put up um, something up here about it. But what we see in the sixth and the seventh verse is a, is a chiasm. And a chiasm is a, a literary structure that the Hebrews used to get a specific point across. And the specific point would show up in the middle of the chiasm. So they would match line by line until they got to the middle. Sixth and the seventh chapter, the main point or the main focus of this chiastic structure that Joshua brings out was to focus on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's the main focus. Joshua's drawing attention to it as the centerpiece of the whole event. It's not that Israel themselves had the power to walk across the Jordan themselves. He hones in on it being Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant being the centerpiece, the monument as to why they were able to cross. God was with them, right? So after Joshua explains what the people did, the culmination of the command happens, right? First given by God to Joshua and then Joshua to the people. In verse 9, we actually see a, a, a new set of stones. Joshua's told, get 12 men, right? Tell them to take 12 stones and set it up as a monument. But what we see in verse 9 is Joshua himself setting up stones in the midst of the Jordan River, which was never an instruction from God. So the question is, why is Joshua himself doing that, right? And I think this is, this is my own interpretation of what's going on here, but it seems as if God puts Joshua in charge. He tells him, you go take these 12 men, tell them to get 12 stones, set up this memorial, right? But you're in charge, right? So I think because he was ultimately responsible for the memorial being set up, he himself set a memorial up himself in the middle of the Jordan River. He was taking his... So after the stones had been set up in the Jordan River, the people passed, and the men grabbing the stones, the priests who were carrying the ark of the Lord passed over before the people. And in verse 12, the author reminds us 
of the sons of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who were obedient to what Moses commanded them back in Numbers. They saw a piece of land on the eastern side of the Jordan. They said, we want to settle this land. Moses said, that's fine, but your brothers have to go clean out the Canaanites, and you got to come with them. So what we see here is these two and a half tribes actually fulfilling the promise that they made to Moses, and they say to Joshua, we're going to come, we're going to come over with you, and we're going to fight too. 40,000 of them ready for war is what the, is what the Bible says. And then in, in verse 14, what we see is a, a true transition from Moses to Joshua as Israel's leader. The verse says that the Lord exalted Joshua just as he did with Moses, and the people stood in awe for the rest of his life. It's similar to what happened when Israel crossed the Red Sea. Exodus 14.31 says that the people feared Yahweh and believed in his servant Moses. The people hold in awe the divinely appointed leader Joshua, who has essentially now become the new Moses, right? And that's got, that, I mean, that had to be tough. You're talking about a man who took a ridiculous amount of people out of a slavery, right? All of those ten plagues and this magnificent work, he gets them to cross the Red Sea, and now he goes, all right, Joshua, you're up. Those are some big shoes to fill. And in life, sometimes I feel like that happens to us too. We get you know, pushed into situations or, or things like that where we have to fill shoes, and that's, that's difficult. And Joshua, by the grace of God, did a pretty good job. So after this, the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to come up out of the Jordan, and the priests did so. And when their souls came upon the dry ground, the waters rushed back, and they returned and covered all of its banks. The second they, they, I, I always think that's cool. The second their foot touched the ground, right behind them, all the water came back, right? In verse 419, Joshua gives us the specific day in which these events occurred. On the tenth day of the first month, is when they came up out of the Jordan and encamped at Gilgal, which was two miles away from the eastern border of Jericho. Now, the day that Joshua gives is important. It was on the same day, 40 years before, that Israel had begun to prepare for going out of Egypt by setting apart the Passover lamb. Therefore, we might say this day had marked the beginning of redemption for Israel, and now it marked its completion. What Yahweh began, he, begot, be, be, uh, he bought back into completion. And I think it's important here to understand that the theme, one of the themes of the book of Joshua is the giving of Israel the land. And if we look back to Genesis, one of the three promises that God gives to Abraham is land. He said, I'm going to give you a land. And this whole book is about Israel conquering that land that God promised to them. So when he took them out of Egypt, it was the beginning of that mark, and on the same day, he brings them over the Jordan into the land that he promised them. Think about the timing of God. In verse 420, the 12 stones that were taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal and again repeated what the stones being set up were a memorial for concerning the generations of Israel. However, this time Joshua mentions that it was God who dried up 
the waters and allowed them to pass over on dry ground. Joshua reminds them that it was also God who allowed them to pass over the dry ground at the Red Sea. The emphasis is on God's works. The reason that God had done these things can be seen in verse 24. Quote, All the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Every Gentile observer at the time would have clear proof of the might of the God of Israel. And that instilled some fear if we look at Rahab. She was petrified. Jericho was petrified. They didn't let anyone in. They didn't let anyone out. They knew what was coming, and they still hardened their hearts and fought the Israelites. Unbelief. So that's kind of just what went down in the story. That was just reiterating what happened in the story. And now I'm going to move into an interpretation of the story. And when we're interpreting what we're looking for and trying to communicate is what the author is trying to communicate by including this event to his original reader and what the story means in the context of the whole book and how it contributes to the purpose. We want to draw application to ourselves. We need to first understand what does this mean for Israel in the time that Joshua is writing it. What's the purpose, right? So first of all, the focus of the book is on God. I, I, I don't know if I said this earlier. It's not on Israel. It's not on Joshua. It's not on Moses. It's on nobody else but God. He is the focus, the centerpiece of every book of the Bible you write, even if he's not even explicitly stated, which I think Esther actually never mentions God, but he's there. He's the main theme. Although Joshua and Israel play a part in the book, God is the main character, and he's the one the book that is about. Second is to show God's faithfulness in completing his promise to Abraham by giving the land to Israel. That's a part of this book, that God is faithful in his promises, right? We see that promise given in Genesis 12, 13, and 15. God reiterates it three times to Abraham. In the book of Joshua, the land is the focus of the Abrahamic covenant, as I mentioned. And thirdly, it's to show that God was righteous, righteous in keeping his covenant promise to Israel. And Israel would experience blessings from obedience and curses from disobedience. The blessing was the land that God had promised them. And as seen in the previous generation, unbelief and disobedience restricted Israel from entering the land. In the book of Joshua, there are four main purposes that we're going to pull out as far as interpretation. But I want to just make one point here. Obedience in your life is very key. And if you're in disobedience, you're sorely mistaken because that's not what the Bible is going to teach you. And this, listen... Everything we get, everything that you, you know, read out, any article, whatever, this, this is where you have to go. This is your check and your balance, right? And if what you're getting is not out of this, it's just nonsense. You understand what I'm saying? And sometimes in our modern day church, we don't want to talk about being disciplined. We want to talk about just love and kind, and, and that's, that has a place. But you're a covenant people of God. That's who you are. You were bought with a price. Obey. Jesus says it. 
in the Gospel of John. If you love me, what will you do? That's how we know. You can't ever repay what he did on that cross, but you can demonstrate your love by obeying him. And he's never going to, you're not under his wrath, and it's, it's not going to be a, you know, a, a destructive force that comes against you, but when you are loved by the Father, he punishes his children to get them back. He disciplines. And I think that's something that we really need to keep in our head, and I, I've had to learn that the hard way a couple times. And pastor, our old pastor used to say, you know, a smart person learns from his own mistakes and a wise person learns from others. Well, I've been smart for a long time and I'm getting sick of it. I'd like to be wise. So the first purpose that we have for the writing of this specific chapter in this book is that it was going to be a memorial for the future children of Israel. So far in Israel's history, they've had many great stories of what God had done for their ancestors. And up until this point, many of them had not seen the miracles. If you don't remember, an entire generation died off in the wilderness. These kids, these people had not seen what happened at the Red Sea with the exception of a few of them, right? So these miracles, although they were true, were stories they couldn't see, couldn't feel. After the parting of the Jordan, the stones became a tangible connection to a real event in history. The stones' purpose was to be a testimony and a memorial to Israel's descendants that God had worked a great miracle in stopping the waters of the Jordan. Right? This was something that the children could look at physically ask their parents about, and the parents could respond what God had done for them, and this, that being the stones, of the, the stones were for the fathers to explain to their children about the miracles of God. I got tongue twisted there. This is something that they would not have the privilege of when they were themselves children. So you picture, you know, pick a Hebrew name. Obadiah takes his son, walks up, looks at the Jordan River, points at it and says, that, see those stones there? That's what God did for us. He cut this whole river off for us. That was the first point that Joshua was trying to make by setting up these stones. Is this would be a memorial, a teaching point to the next generation. Second, the stones were a tie to the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. When looking at the stories, there are many similarities to both of these stories. The most obvious would be it's the parting of a gigantic body of water, right? Another similarity is the parting of these bodies of thousands of observers. All of Israel would have been at both events. When Moses and Aaron counted all of the men 20 years and older in Numbers 1, there was a total of 603,550 people. And that excluded women and children. We're talking probably over a million people. This is a monumental audience. You ever been to a football game? 100,000 people. Make that, multiply that by 10, everybody's watching this just part. Talking about a dramatic event, you know? Another similarity 
is both situations had an emphasis on the divinely appointed leadership. In chapter 4, verse 14, Joshua is exalted by God in the sight of Israel, of all of Israel, and they were in awe of him. Joshua, in effect, is now the new Moses. And after crossing the Red Sea, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Moses as his servant. I want to I point something out here because I think this is also important. When that miracle at the Red Sea happened, Israel, it says Israel believed in God. Abraham is counted as righteous. What was it? It was that he believed God. It was his faith. So when God takes Israel to Mount Sinai and gives them the law, that's not how they got saved. He gave his law to an already saved people. And I know I've already mentioned this once, but going back to being obedient, you've been given a law as a covenant people who's been saved already. That's not how you get saved. And that, that, that's, a, that's a problem I, I guarantee every single one of us struggle with on a daily basis at times. I'm not doing the right, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, all this. I guarantee it seeps into everybody's head, seeps into my head all the time. You've got to remind yourself every single day that that's not what saves you. You were given a gift of grace. It's no work. No work. The third similarity that we see is that these miracles would really not be repeated. And what I'm going to say here is there's an economy of miracles that we see in Scripture. And what I mean by an economy of miracles is that sometimes God acts because he has a purpose that he needs to get into your head. See what I'm saying? And these two events really don't happen again. A massive splitting of, the, of, of, a, of a sea or a river, they don't happen again in the Old Testament. And what I'm saying is God used this specific event to get something through to Israel, Right? And I'm not saying that God doesn't act every day because he does. But the, the word I'm looking for, the monumental miracle that occurs here is not something we see on a daily basis. We see healings on a daily basis. We see God answer prayers on a daily basis. But if he splits that pond over there, it's going to be for a specific reason to demonstrate something to us. For Israel to remember, that was the point. You don't forget something like this. And it was a way for them to relate to their future generations by remembering this. These stones were a way for Israel to remember a great miracle that God did at the Jordan River. And fourth, it was a warning for Israel against forgetting. Has anybody in here read the book of Judges. They forgot. Looking back to Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12, when Moses explains to Israel what they're getting in the promised land, but not to forget what God did for them, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, and in the same way, they should not forget what God did at the Jordan River. There is a massive theme of remembrance that runs through the entire Old Testament. It's all throughout the Psalms. It's throughout Judges. It's throughout Joshua. It's throughout King. It's always there. Because when you forget, that's when you mess up. The third purpose for it 
was that it was going to be a sign to all of the earth that God is the Almighty God. Right? This is made clear to the reader in verse 24 when it states that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. It's referring to the memorial. When they look at it, they'll know too. It seeks to demonstrate to all the enemies of Israel that Israel's God controls the military power to win any battle for Israel and is thus truly the Lord of all the earth. If he can make a river split, your army doesn't stand a chance. When we look back to chapter 2 of Joshua, as I mentioned before, the terror is already in the minds and the hearts of the inhabitants of Jericho, and it's clear in Rahab. They knew. 40 years. They knew. And from the destruction of the two Amorite kings prior to them even coming into the land, the Canaanites already knew God's power, and from this display there would be no doubt about the power of the God of the Israelites. God was justified too. And here's an interesting thing about Canaan. God never says in the book of Genesis, kill the Canaanites. He says, drive them out. They had 40 years to repent and leave a land that God promised to Jacob's descendants. 40 years. That is a lack of faith. They didn't believe it. But yet somehow they were afraid. God was completely justified in taking that land in Canaan because he gave them a grace period. They didn't accept it. Every unbeliever in this life has a grace period. It's this. It's now. God's going to judge them when they pass away. That's just a fact. The fourth point is that Israel would have a proper fear of God. The last purpose for the memorial narrative was for that fear, for Israel to have that fear. Going back to the theme of the book, God is faithful to his covenant. Things would come upon them. It was that simple. And in Deuteronomy 28, uh, the, the cursings are explained. Moses explains what those cursings would be from disobedience. And in verse 24, it states that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It was an inducement to all the Israelites to fear God all their days, and that is, accord to him and him alone worship and allegiance that's due him. The miracle was so amazing that it should call forth such a response from God's people. Remember what Joshua says at the end of his book, too? Choose who you're going to serve. you got all these idols here. He, he chastises them. He says, get these idols out of here. If you're going to choose God... If you're going to choose Yahweh, get these idols out of here. Get rid of them. Obey him. Love him. He loves you. So much. We can't even fathom that. I mean, to fathom, I've tried. I can't fathom grace. They know. I, I ask myself 50 million questions a day. I cannot fathom the grace of God. It is amazing. An all-powerful God humbles himself in human flesh to take away your sin. 
He could have wiped all of us out. He didn't do that. So we've looked through an exposition, we've looked through an interpretation, so now what I wanna do is grab, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me and you? So we saw that the theme is God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises if Israel obeys and does their part. So, how or in what ways can we learn these timeless truths from this story for our lives today? And the first piece of application that can be taken away is not only should we remind ourselves of what God has already done for us in our lives, but the people of God should physically take mementos away from each situation that God has brought you through. Take tangible items that connect you to real history to help you remember what God has done in your life. Israel took stones right out of the river that God had just stopped for them to walk through. Those stones were real, physical evidence of God's work in their life. Every time they looked at those stones, it told the story of God taking their people through the Jordan River. Let me tell you something. I know that every single person in this room has a situation or an event in life that God has took them through. And remember up here, but you know what? Sometimes we forget. And why not take something from the event and save it and be able to look at it? You know what I mean? You, let's say you have a medical condition and you're in the hospital for a while and they put a brace, save the bracelet, save it. You look back at that physical, real piece of evidence in life that God brought you through. It's something you can actually look at. You know what I mean? And that's what Israel had. Mine follows me every day. I try and get rid of it. And this leads me to my second piece of application. The Israelites were were not only to set up a memorial, but they were told to use it to teach, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he won't depart from it. Right? That's Proverbs. But this is something that we can do. We have young children. You have that piece of real evidence in life of what God brought you through. And your kid goes, Mommy, Daddy, what's that? This is what God did for me. And, I got, and I'm going to be honest. To adults, this comes alive. To a child, this is very difficult to grab. And they're just stories. But when you have something real in your midst to show your child, that becomes a great teaching point. And that's what God instructs the Israelites to do. And that's what you're instructed to do. Third, the mementos that we keep will demonstrate the power of God in our lives to unbelievers. Rahab saw the power of God and a healthy fear of God that led her to repentance and acceptance into the covenant people. And in the same way, the power that God demonstrates in our lives can be seen by those around us and will lead them to ask questions and may even lead to their salvation. You may look a little weird if you got these stones just hanging up on your mantle, but someone who's an unbeliever walks into your house and goes, what is that? There's your jumping point. I know it's hard to just sometimes jump into a conversation about God with unbelievers, 
Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes they give you a lot of nonsense. Sometimes they don't want to hear it. And let's be honest, when you guys were unbelievers, you didn't want to hear it either. But having something there to stimulate for a question is so important. The lights did that. Rahab saw it. Oh man, they're coming. I need to get out of here. And lastly, as believers in Christ, we don't forget what he did. Right? The cross is the ultimate memento of God's love, grace, mercy, power, wrath, and sovereignty over his whole creation. And that's why once a month you take communion. You remember what Jesus did on that cross. He took, someone once asked me, why, why was it so bloody? Why was it so gory? Why was it so horrific? Because that was, it was 